Uh, so we're looking at Exodus 2 today, uh, but before we get into um, Exodus 2 proper, uh, I want to go back to um, some of the stuff that Sparky was talking about last week. He started us all the way back in, uh, in Genesis, uh, which you really have to do to understand Exodus. It's, you know, it's one narrative. Uh, uh, and uh, it, the Genesis sets the stage for Exodus. One of my professors referred to uh, the book of Genesis as the kingdom prologue. So Exodus is about the kingdom that God establishes through Moses, and Genesis is the kingdom prologue. It's the story that sets the stage for the story of, of the redemption of God's people out of, out of Egypt. Uh, and uh, we see a lot of, uh, of themes uh, repeating uh, in, the, in the book of Genesis and then into the book of Exodus. And uh, one of these uh, themes is this idea that God was going to create a people for himself. That was always the plan of God, to have a people that would be his people. And so he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and tells them to be fruitful and multiply because he's going to have a people. That was to be his people. And, uh, and then Adam uh, rebels, uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, it, it would seem to us, as we're initially reading the story for the first time, that God's plans have been thwarted. But in Genesis 3.15, he promises that a seed from the woman would come who would crush the head of the serpent, that his plans uh, have not been thwarted. And so then we see uh, this same sort of theme coming up in Noah, where uh, things have devolved. They've gotten worse and worse until the Bible says Noah's like the only righteous man left. Uh, And uh, God wipes out the world but preserves Noah and his family in the ark, and they get off the ark. And God says, be fruitful and multiply. So he uses that same language again with Noah to start over. And that's why Peter, when he, starts, when he discusses Noah, he refers to everything prior to Noah as the world that then was, and then everything after Noah as the world that now is. So for Peter, there's this new creation at, at Noah and with the, with the same command then to be fruitful and multiply because God is going uh, to have his people and uh, one of the other themes that is just uh, runs all the way through the scriptures is this theme. I, I think of the, you know, in my own mind, the Bible is, the whole Bible is trying to answer John the Baptist's question. John the Baptist is in, has, has uh, he's already baptized Jesus. He's declared him to be the, the Messiah, the one who was to come. And then suddenly John is in jail. And this was not John's idea of what the kingdom would look like. You know, when, this, when the Messiah came and the Savior came to redeem his people, John's vision of what that would look like did not include him being in jail and ultimately, of course, losing his head. So he sends the disciples to Jesus. After he's already declared Jesus to be the Messiah, uh, uh, he sends his, prophet, his uh, disciples to Jesus and says, Are you the one to come or should we expect another? And in so many ways, the Bible is answering that question all along. Genesis 3.15 promises us one to come, a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And we're constantly, as we go through the scriptures, asking, are you the one to come 
or should we expect another? And so uh, we get Moses declared righteous by God, the savior of his family, the establishment of a new creation. This must be the one. Uh, well, I, we, it goes all the way back to, to Shem, uh, I, mean, I mean, to um, uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, 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 is, you know, there's a promised child, and then boom, they have a son. Is this the one? And then he turns around and kills his brother. No, this is not the one. Noah, the great deliverer, the righteous one, declared righteous by God. Is this the one? No, first thing he does in the new creation is get drunk. Uh, so this is not the one. And, and we go on and on. Abraham, is this the one? No. David, is this the one? Uh, and even here in Moses, is this the one? But pausing in the story of Abraham for a second. Uh, Abraham is given this great promise by God in Genesis 15 that the, the, the 90-year-old Abraham, who's never had a single child, will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand, grains of sand on the seashore. Uh, I thought about this that week. Could I, could I count a handful of sand? You know, what would it take to count? How long would it take to count? Could I count a handful of sand as I was thinking? And I decided I wasn't going to try. Um, uh, so much less the seashore, right? So there's this great promise. But right in the middle of the promise is something that we would not think about as, uh, and, and, and Moses, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Abraham is, um, believes the Lord when he tells him. You know, it says the, and Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then he goes on to say, but how will I know? This is kind of the, uh, you know, I, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. You know, give me something that I can hang on to so I'll know. And so God says, well, uh, take some animals and, uh, you know, cut them in half and lay them out in, you know, the halves in two rows. And, um, and then, uh, and then, uh, he ha- then Abraham has to wait. He has to shoo off the carrion birds who come and try to eat the carcasses. He's waiting because he's got to shoo the vultures away. And then uh, as night comes on, uh, the Lord puts him into a deep sleep or trance or something. And, and, and uh, Abraham sees these, uh, this uh, flaming torch and smoking pot pass through the pieces, in the middle of the two pieces. And it's interesting, Calvin's commentary, he says, clearly this is communicating to Abraham that, you know, we know for sure that God will do what he's claimed to do. But we have no idea why. And it wasn't until like the late 18th, early 19th, no, I'm sorry, late 19th, early 20th century, as archaeology became a bigger and bigger uh, scientific endeavor, that we know what's going on. This God is using an ancient Near Eastern covenant ratification ceremony that um, Abraham would recognize. So Abraham's asked the question, how will I know this is going to happen? And God says, okay, start the covenant ratification ceremony. Take the animals, cut them in half, and set them apart. Now, the way it would, would work was, would be, so, so Lee and I are, are two city-state kings. You know, in this time period, you got, you got the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, king of Salem. They're all, we got all these little city-state kings. And so Lee and I are two city-state kings, and, uh, and we've, we've brokered a treaty, a covenant between the two of us. We are agreeing to something. 
And then we, to ratify our covenant, our treaty, we would cut the animals in half, and then Lee and I would walk down between the pieces, and as we do, we would call upon our individual gods, because we'd each have a god. We call upon our gods to uh, uh, witness our treaty, and should we break our treaty, then may it happen to us as it's happened to these animals. May we be cut in two so that people can pass through our parts, right? And... Uh, uh, so Abraham has heard the voice of the Lord now for several years, right? He heard the, heard the voice had spoken to him and told him to come out of uh, the Chaldeans and up into Ur and then down uh, into Canaan. He's been following the voice of the Lord for many years, but he now is expecting the Lord to show up for the first time and walk with him through the pieces, you know, so he's shooing the birds away and waiting for the Lord to appear and then walk through the pieces with Abraham so that, so that he would know this covenant between he and God had been ratified. But instead, uh, the, the, the um, flaming torch and the smoking pot come and go through the pieces without Abraham. And so what we're supposed to see there is the father and the son agreeing to this covenant, agreeing to uh, fulfill this covenant that was made with Abraham. In other words, I take the responsibility, Abraham. I'm not walking with you where I take part of the responsibility and you take part of the responsibility. I take all the responsibility. So with Adam and with Noah, it was you be, mul- you be fruitful and multiply. But when we get to Abraham, the Lord says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the seas of the seashore. No longer commanding Abraham to be fruitful, but taking it on himself that he will create his people, that God would be the one that, that, uh, that, God would be the one that would create his people. So this is like the greatest promise ever, right? This is, this is not only the Lord promising to bless but he's promising to bless and taking the curse upon himself should he not fulfill it, which, of course, is exactly what Christ did. He took the curse of man upon himself on the cross to fulfill this covenant with Abraham. And, uh, uh, but right in the middle of this greatest promise of all time is uh, this statement. So it goes... The Lord said, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they are to serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Uh, So last week... um, uh, Sparky t- uh, talked about how great the affliction was that the Israelites were going through and how in uh, chapter 1 there, he, it just piles up adjectives as to how terrible this affliction that, that you know, the Israelites had gone through. And I wanted to come back to that and, and camp on the 400 years. So this was not just a great affliction, but it was a great affliction for 400 years. And so, um, now, granted, they weren't always, you know, the whole time, most of the time, but not the whole time, they weren't slaves. But even before they're slaves, this is an affliction. 
to have to flee your home country because of famine and to sojourn in a foreign land is seen as an affliction. And, and we can, we should be able to, you know, to uh, relate to that. Um, um, I mean, if you think about um, what it must be like for uh, Central and South Americans, for Mexicans coming into this country. They're coming because it's better here. It's better for them to be here than there. Like it was better for the Israelites to be in Egypt where there was bread than it was to be in their home country where they would starve. But that doesn't mean that coming here, that everything's just wonderful. They arrive, they have to leave their culture, their language, uh, family, uh, to a place where people don't do things the way they do them. They don't think the way they think. They don't, their, their culture is just completely different. And so there's a sense in which you're just, uh, you know, this is better, but oh, if only we could have this back home. Oh, if only we could have this in our own culture, in our own uh, world. Uh, it would be so much uh, better. And so the Israelites, even under the time of Joseph, are still sojourners in a foreign land with strange customs and strange language and strange dress. I mean, the brothers didn't even recognize Joseph. His dress was so strange to them. You know, he didn't look like an Israelite. Uh, and, uh, and so for 400 years, uh, they're in this. And for the majority of the time, they're slaves. And so you were born a slave, you grew up a slave, you got married as a slave, you had children as a slave, and you died as a slave. So not just in terms of how hard the suffering is, but how long the suffering is, how long this period of darkness is. And yet, it is given to us in the promises in Genesis 15 of this great promise that the Lord would bless his people. And they go down to Egypt, and uh, the, the last uh, words in chapter 1, uh, after the midwife plot didn't work, and then after he told all the Egyptians just to grab the babies and throw them into the Nile, it says, but they, in spite of all this, they, got, they grew large and strong. So the, the Lord is working on his people even in this time of darkness, a reversal of what is expected, right? It's a, what Pharaoh wants is to reduce the size and make them weak. He wants to take out the men and reduce the numbers. And, and what happens? They get bigger and stronger. So uh, uh, God is at work, but if you're born a slave, raised as a slave, married as a slave, have children as a slave, have your boy cast into the river to drown and then die as a slave, you're not thinking, boy, God's plan is really working out great, right? You're in, you're in darkness. You're not see, you can't see beyond that. No one sees beyond that. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, again, uh, the, the, we've all, we all go through suffering. None of us has dealt with that. None of us has had that kind of lengthy terrible suffering 
And yet this is part of God's plan. And he's working this out for their good. He is making them a great nation in the midst of this suffering, which puts a whole new spin on Romans 8.28. You know, in Romans 8.28, all things work out to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That was true for the guy and, and husband and wife who were born a slave, grew up a slave, got married a slave, had children, had their kid cast into the uh, Nile and died, and then they themselves died a slave. Romans 8.28 still applies to them. God was working out all things for their good. Now, again, walk up to that person and say, that's what God's doing. They're going to say, you're crazy. Uh, and they may even punch you in the face. Um, uh, uh, but God has a plan, and his plan doesn't always work the way we would want it to or in our timing. Uh, and so uh, I think of the, the verse in Trust and Obey uh, that, uh, can, that may be true at times, but certainly cannot be universalized. Um, not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sign or a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. I'm telling you, those Israelites had a sigh and a tear. And we're going to see that actually at the end of the, of the chapter 2. We're going to see their sighs and tears. And they had sighs and tears that lasted uh, their entire life. So it is true that God quickly drives it away, but quickly may be at the end of your 80-year life um, uh, when we finally uh, reach our uh, heavenly kingdom uh, in, in Israel. Um, so all that as background. Uh, so now let's actually look at our chapter. Uh, probably, I mean, if you grew up in the church, uh, I'm not going to read anything today that you go, wow, I don't remember reading that before. Because this is one of those stories you've been told, you know, 80 times since you were in fourth grade, you know, Sunday school. Um, Exodus 2.1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a, Le a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took, him, uh, she took for him a basket made of uh, bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Uh, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance uh, to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe and, uh, at the river while her young uh, women walked beside the river. She saw uh, the, uh, while her young women walked by the river, she saw a basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she had opened it, she saw uh, the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman, the mother, took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him 
out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked uh, on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling with each other. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the priest at Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God said to the the people of Israel, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So, again, a very familiar story to us, but not just because of, of, you know, our Sunday school, childhood Sunday school education, but because the story gets repeated twice in the New Testament. There are very few stories of the Old Testament that get repeated twice uh, in uh, the New Testament, but you have Acts 7.17, beginning in Acts 7.17. But the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him... Oh, I'm sorry. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended and oppressed the man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. 
And then in Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the avenger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So we have the story told and retold and retold uh, to us. And so it's a very uh, familiar story. So there was a man from the house of Levi who had a wife also who was a Levite. And they conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a fine child. Uh, The two writers in the New Testament follow the Septuagint and refer to him as a beautiful child. So sometimes this will be translated uh, in the Old Testament as uh, a handsome, he was a handsome lad, a handsome boy. Um, But uh, there is a a problem with that. I mean, it just seems an odd part of a very terse narrative. Uh, uh, So many details that we learn later on in the Scripture are left out uh, in this narrative. Uh, Like later on, we learn the names of, of of uh, Moses' parents, and it, it mentions the birth of the uh, one son, uh, but we learn later that he actually has two sons, and uh, there's just a number of things about this. Um, uh, Stephen tells us that um, he was 40 when he came out uh, and, and killed the Egyptian, whereas uh, the narrative here just says uh, after he'd grown up after some time after he had grown up. So it's a very terse narrative. And then, but it throws in this thing that uh, she saw that he was a fine son, and, uh, and so she decided to save him, which is like, so you're saying that if he was ugly, she wouldn't have wanted to save him? Uh, I don't think that's what the, the writer was trying to communicate, and I think we can see this in uh, the hint at this in the Acts passage where Stephen says, Moses was beautiful to God. So here it says, she saw that he was a fine uh, boy. And in the, in, the, uh, in the Acts, it says he was, he, he was beautiful to God. And uh, the phrase used here, uh, that she saw he was beautiful, uses very similar language to Genesis chapter 1, where God saw that it was good. And so... This is, this is um, in essence, she's speaking, the, the mother is speaking better than she knows. She's saying, I have a good son. But the writer, Moses, wants us to see that God was beginning this creation again. God was going to create a people for himself now through the rescuing of, of Moses. The, uh, the work, the, the Savior work of Moses. Uh, God here through Moses' mother is declaring him good, much like in the beginning God saw that it was good. Um, and then uh, if, we didn't, if we didn't catch that, if we were reading through, if, you know, if we're a good Hebrew uh, uh, scholar uh, and we, um, we didn't catch that, then... She makes a basket for him. 
of bulrushes. Now, our English word here, basket, it's obviously a basket because it's made from bulrushes. I mean, you weave rushes together. What you create is a basket. Interestingly, though, in Hebrew, they don't, he, uh, the, the writer, Moses, doesn't use the word, the common word for basket. He uses the word that he used in Genesis for ark. So she made an ark out of bulrushes, is the Hebrew. It's the same Hebrew word. Uh, Noah was to build an ark. Here the mother makes an ark. And in both um, Moses' gopher wood ark and, um, and uh, Moses' mother's bulrush ark, they are covered with pitch. And so we're now supposed to see Moses as the new Noah, the one who has to go through the water trial of the flood in order to uh, rescue uh, his uh, people. Uh, uh, and, and then the irony of, of this whole story is just full of, you know, things not working as you would expect them to do. And remember, the, again, the last phrase of the first uh, uh, chapter is that once the midwife conspiracy doesn't work, well, just throw the babies into the Nile. And so that's exactly what Moses' mother has done. She has thrown her baby into the Nile, but not in the manner that Pharaoh wanted, right? Uh, they were just to be thrown into the Nile, drown, sink. And so she puts her baby in the Nile, just like the command, but she does it in such a way that he does not sink. She puts him in an ark so that he is preserved through the water trial uh, rather than having the waters cover him uh, like uh, all of the other men of Noah's age. He is rescued by the ark from the water trial. So it's looking backwards, but it's also looking forwards. He's put in uh, among the reeds, and that's the same word there that is used um, the, 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 in the Hebrew, the, um, what we call the Red Sea in our English translation is literally called the Reed Sea in, uh, in Hebrew. Now, it is the Red Sea. Some, some uh, 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 commentators have tried to make a big deal out of that and say they didn't actually cross the Red Sea. They crossed this other body of water that we don't know where that is. It's the Reed Sea, and it, maybe it's just a creek. Uh, but, no, it, it's the, the Hebrew for the Red Sea was actually called uh, the Reed Sea. And so he was placed among the reeds in the Nile, which looked back. You know, it's a looking back to Noah and a looking forward to the water trial that he will lead his people through in the Reed Sea, the Red Sea. Um, uh, most likely, the sister here, uh, the, the older sister that's hanging out on the bank to look and see, most likely is Miriam. We don't know for sure, but this is most likely the case that it's Miriam uh, hanging out there. And, uh, and she's a slick character. You know, it, notice it doesn't say in the story that, um, uh, that the princess decided to keep Moses, right? It just said she opened it and she felt pity, right? And so Miriam is seeing this. She's watching this. She sees the pity 
on the face of the princess and immediately steps in and goes, shall I get a nursemaid for you so that you can keep the baby? Uh, and, uh, and the princess uh, agrees and, you know, the, kind of the rest of the way it plays out. Uh, and then the other thing, another thing about the terseness of this story, has it ever occurred to you to ask the question, how come Aaron's alive? You know, Aaron's brother Moses, right? Uh, uh, and so Moses had to be saved by the edict of the king, by this miracle, right? So how come Aaron's alive? How come he could be alive later? And he, you know, he doesn't show up till later in the story, but why didn't he drown in the Nile, right? And uh, Aaron is Moses's older brother. And so uh, the edict comes along after Aaron's born. So it wasn't like, it wasn't take every male of the Israelites and cast them into the water. It was take every newborn male and cast them into the water. And so uh, um, Aaron had already been born before this edict comes along. Uh, it doesn't say that, but that's, that's what I'm assuming how this plays out. And uh, so then here is yet another kind of reference back to um, uh, the Genesis story where, uh, uh, again, the reversal of fortunes, the younger brother becomes the leader of the clan, uh, which is a very common theme throughout the scriptures and throughout uh, Genesis. Uh, so, um, so, Pharaoh's uh, daughter comes down to bathe at the river while her, uh, while with the young women, women walking around. She saw the basket amongst the reeds. Uh, she takes it, realizes it's a Hebrew child. Um, and uh, the uh, sister, Miriam, has the, plots this little plot and ends up getting uh, Moses' mother to nurse the child until he's weaned. We don't know, again, how old he was when she takes him back to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, but she takes him back. So Miriam's quick thinking. Now, here's the, the last line of this is also interesting. It says that Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, Moses in Hebrew is a draw out, means to, to draw out. It's very odd for an Egyptian princess to give Moses a Hebrew name, especially since this could be bring danger, right, to, the, to, to Moses. This could cause problems for Moses to be walking around Egyptian culture with a Hebrew name. The interesting thing is Moses has a different meaning in, um, in, um, in Egyptian in Hebrew, Moses means to be drawn out. In Egyptian, um, Moses means to be born. And, and so we see that in, um, uh, we, we actually believe that the king, or the pharaoh at this time, is uh, Tutmos, so spelled either T-H-U-T-M-O-S-E or T-U-T-M-O-S-I-S, as we translate it into English, Tutmos. Tutmos means born of God. So most, the mostest part there is the born, tut, God, born of God, tut, Moses. I, uh, so this is part of that, that cult, uh, Egyptian cult of, of the, the pharaohs being the sons of, of God. And so tut, Moses uh, is, the, is the son of God. And so there's a double play 
on words here, where from a from a um, uh, from a Hebrew standpoint, Moses is the one who is drawn out of the water, but from an Egyptian standpoint, she is pretending as if he was born of her. Uh, a, a true born a true born uh, Egyptian, uh, a Moses, as it were. Uh, So even at this uh, juncture, uh, we see that God is rescuing his people by overcoming oppression and using the very oppression as the means of rescue. It's not as if God, you know, kind of, okay, I got to do something now because now they're casting all the babies, all the boys into the sea uh, now or into the river Nile uh, now. Uh, the uh, my plans are going to be thwarted because there won't be a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, but rather God is using the very um, thing that the uh, Pharaoh wanted to destroy the Israelites with to be the vehicle of their salvation, because He is going to use um, Moses's education in the Egyptian system to prepare him to be this great deliverer from the, uh, 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 from the Egyptians. And so without, without the command of Pharaoh to throw the babies into the Nile, Moses' mother would have never put him in the ark, and he would never have been rescued by the princess, and he would never be raised in the wisdom of the Egyptians. You know, that's, uh, I can't remember now if that's in Acts or Hebrew. He's raised in the wisdom of the Egyptians. God was using these things to prepare Moses to be uh, his uh, deliverer, his uh, savior of his people, his redeemer. Um, And uh, as we already said, we already saw it uh, in the previous chapter that it was the very uh, oppression that caused the people to grow and uh, strong and to be multiplied. And so going back to that 400-year question, Just like Moses had to be in the house of Egypt for 40 years to be prepared to be the deliverer of the people, the people of Israel needed to be in Egypt for 400 years to be prepared to be God's people. It it changes your culture when generation after generation you are born, raised, live, die as slaves. They needed to learn certain things. God wanted them... God was using this time to grow them in a variety of ways uh, to prepare them uh, to be his people. Um, Yes. Yeah, (laughs) right. Yes. So he's, he's, he's creating his people. Again, the irony, you would think, that if they had stayed in the land of promise, that they would have grown and been fruitful. But God took them to the land of suffering to make them grow and be fruitful. So then 40 years pass uh, while um, Moses is uh, being trained, raised in the house of Pharaoh as Pharaoh's grandson. So then one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people uh, literally, uh, here, uh, his brothers. He went out to his brothers. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brothers and looked on their burden, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. 
Um, uh, and then comes back the next day, and he breaks up this fight between two Hebrews. And the word here, why do you strike your companion, in verse 13, strike there is the same Hebrew word as in verse 11, beating. So the, the, uh, the slave master was beating the Hebrew, and he comes back the next day and finds a Hebrew beating a Hebrew. The same, he uses the same, Moses uses the same language. And, uh, and uh, so M- Moses uh, has this uh, sense of calling right off the bat. Um, we often, as you know, kind of, I don't know, at least me, as, as I kind of process my Sunday school stories in my head, Moses is the reluctant savior, right? Because, you know, he gets, we get to the burning bush story and, and God says, go. And Moses says, no, um, God says, go. Moses says, I'm not, I'm not, I, 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 I ain't got it. I ain't got the qualifications for this. I can't do this. Um, but I think instead of thinking of Moses as the reluctant Savior, I think we need to think of Moses as the discouraged Savior. I think he had a sense of his own call. Um, and we see that in Acts and Hebrews, that, that Moses has this sense, and even here where it refers to it as the brothers, Moses has this sense that he, he has a calling from God to rescue his brothers. And... Um, and so he, with this sense of call and with all this 40 years of preparation he's been given in Egypt, he goes out amongst his brothers and he begins what he thinks he's called to do and he rescues one of them by killing an Egyptian and, and uh, rescuing this, this Hebrew brother that's being uh, beaten. Then the next day, he comes out and he sees these two Hebrews beating each other. And he says, why are you beating the, your brother? And the one in the wrong, the one doing the beating, the, the punching, says, uh, who made you uh, judge, uh, prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? And, and this is going to be a reoccurring theme all through the book of Exodus, the rejection of God's Messiah. This is a foretaste of what's going to happen over and over in the book of Exodus with the people rejecting Moses. And God, uh, it's to the point where at one point Moses is just like done and uh, with being rejected. And, and God has to step in and say, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And this is kind of a foreshadowing of what's coming, which then the rejection of Moses is a foreshadowing of what's coming in terms of uh, Jesus, uh, John 1.10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, um, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, uh, but God. So he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So uh, Moses leaves the palace. Um, uh, you know, the, um, uh, uh, Stephen says he, he didn't want to cling to the 
the sins of Egypt, but rather wanted to be associated with his brothers. So he leaves the palace. He comes down to the slave fields. He sees the slave master beating uh, the Hebrew. He decides to step in and become the savior of God's people, and yet they reject him. Uh, And what we're going to see is that Moses had a sense of his calling, but he did not have a sense of God's timing or God's way. Because ultimately, it will not be Moses who will kill the Egyptians. It will be God who delivers his people. God fulfills the promise of Genesis 15. It's God that causes the water to fall in uh, upon the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Uh, it won't be by... It will be through Moses, but it will be by God's hand. It's not, Moses had a sense of his calling, but he had no sense of God's timing or God's way at this point. Um, So then, having been rejected by the people, then Moses was afraid, and surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard about it, and Moses was right, it was known, because Pharaoh heard about it. And he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So um, there's a, almost a little bit of a contradiction here uh, between uh, uh, this narrative and the retelling of the narrative in Hebrews. Here we see Moses was afraid, and after he found out that Pharaoh wanted to kill him, he fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. In Hebrews, it said, Moses, by faith, not fearing the king, left and went to a foreign land. And th- these things don't have to be in, in um, you, we don't have to think of these things as being diametrically opposed. One can see what's going on in the world ar- around us and make wise decisions based on that. This is you know, this is about to happen. Um, you know, uh, the stock market's about to crash, so I better get my money out. I have a, I, I'm afraid the stock market is about to crash, so I take out my money. While at the same time, trusting the Lord, not living in fear, right? Having a sense of a negative future that's coming and not living in, and, and reacting to it without living in fear. Does that, does that make sense? Two different uses of the word afraid or fear, right? Um, I, I fear that, that um, you know, we all have that sense of being, uh, I'm afraid that things are not going well in our country. I have a fear that things are going to continue to spiral downward in our country. But that's different than living in fear, Right? We should be the most hopeful of all people because we know that even as things are spiraling out of control, it's our God that's sovereignly in control of it all. So I can be afraid of what might come and at the same time live in hope of what God will do with that, do with it in my life, in the life of my country, in the life of his plan for the kingdom. Uh, And so Moses uh, is fleeing because he knows that that Pharaoh is out to kill him, but he's fleeing in faith, knowing uh, that the Lord is his provider. So he goes up to the land of Midian. Uh, Midian uh, is uh, 
Midian was a descendant of Abraham through Keturah. So remember that it's a very small little unknown story. At the end of Abraham's life, Sarah dies and he remarries Keturah and has many children by her. Midian is one of those descendants from, uh, by Abraham. So he flees the, pro, the, 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 um, the household of promise, but he flees to uh, his distant relatives and Abraham. Uh, so now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came out and drew the water, um, and, uh, and he ends up... Well, wait, let me go back here. So... He, you know, he ends up at the well. He ends up saving the, the seven daughters in the sense of saving. And we know this has been a regular occurrence in their lives, the seven daughters who go out to get the water for the sheep. Because when they get back, um, the father says, how, how come you're back so soon? Because probably they went out. This was like going on every day. They would go out to water, and, and they would have to sit and wait till the, till the men had watered their flocks, and uh, because the men weren't being chivalrous and letting the ladies go first, they were ex- exercising their power and keeping the women oppressed. Um, uh, and so, uh, uh, Ruel, Jethro, we'll get to that in a second. Their father is used to them coming home late because they've had to wait, but today they got home early uh, because Moses, again, in that sense of calling that he has, that he is the rescuer of the oppressed, that he is the protector of the innocent, um, rises up at the well and uh, saves his people. Now, the interesting thing for me about coming to the Midianites uh, is uh, that it was Midianite traders that took Joseph to Egypt in the first place. And so here, again, we see Israel goes into Egypt via the Midianites, and now Moses comes out of Egypt via the Midianites. Uh, and so the, um, so he's, he's also, in that sense, Moses is a new Jacob. Um, uh, he is, um, not only did he, you know, go into, uh, uh, come out of Egypt, uh, but he then comes out of Egypt and sits by a well and and does a mighty deed and finds a wife, just like Jacob, right? Uh, and uh, so then uh, Ruel, his soon-to-be father-in-law, uh, says, why in the world did you not bring this guy back? And uh, so they, um, uh, they go and get him. He takes Zipporah as his wife. Again, very terse narrative. Who knows how long this paragraph takes. He comes back, lives with him. Uh, he gets Zipporah as his wife. They have a baby. Uh, and then, then we return to... Um, well, and I think also the taking of Zipporah as his wife is also a part of this narrative of the people of God rejecting the Savior. So Moses is is in the land, and he um, he comes to his own, and his own reject him, and so he then goes and and in essence takes the Gentile woman as his wife. Samson does the same thing. Then later on, we it worked out a lot better for Moses than it did Samson, but when Samson uh, goes to Delilah, we usually just think of that as Samson was just you know hot after this good-looking foreign girl. 
But at the beginning of the narrative, it says, because there were no righteous women in Israel. So going to take Delilah was part of the judgment on Israel. Because there were no godly women in Israel, Samson takes a foreign wife. So same thing here. Moses gets rejected by the people. He goes and he takes uh, a foreign uh, wife. And then um, then we return uh, to the uh, narrative uh, in Egypt. So during those many days, well, it's been another 40 years, right? So Moses was 40 when he fled Egypt. He's 80 when he comes back. So during those many days... Forty years, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue came up to God. All right, so um, in the early church, um, 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 Christianity was you know, always illegal. But depending on who was the emperor, it was worse or better, right? So... You know, some emperors just really went after persecution and particularly persecuting Christians. Then the next emperor would come along and he couldn't be bothered. It was still illegal to be a Christian, but it wasn't as dangerous to be a Christian. But then the next emperor would come along and he'd want to go after the Christians again. And now it's very dangerous to be a Christian. So often change in leadership, even when you're a sojourner in a foreign country, change in leadership can be of, of, um, you know, of great benefit if you're suffering. And so we get this new Pharaoh, and so there's probably some sense of hope, maybe this will be better. But it's not. The new Pharaoh is just as bad as the old Pharaoh, and so there's this groan. There's this, there was this expectation of hope, and it's dashed. And they groan. And there's just like, oh. And so they groan. Uh, because of their slavery, and they cry out, and they cry out for help. In other words, they pray. They pray. And now the narrative shifts, and Sparky is going to get into much more about this next week. Everything so far has been Moses this and Moses that. Moses attacked the Egyptian. Moses fled to exile. Moses uh, married. Moses ran off the ship. Now, suddenly all the verbs are God's verbs. God, uh, uh, sorry. God heard and remembered. God saw and knew, and so the, uh, and I think we're supposed to take these in in parallel. He heard, the prayers went up, and they got God's attention. Remember, this is this is anthropomorphism. Moses is explaining God to us in ways that we can understand, right? And uh, they pray out to God, and he heard. He got, they got his attention with their cries for help, and he remembered. So it's not that he had forgotten. It's not that he wasn't listening the whole time. But because they prayed, Moses is saying, your prayers are significant. You groan and cry out for help to the Lord, and he hears and he remembers. Your prayers are significant. And then it says, he saw. Same word that it said of Moses when he saw the Egyptian beating the, uh, the, 
the Hebrew. Moses saw the Egyptian beating the Hebrew. Now it's not Moses seeing. It's God seeing. God saw what the Israelites were going through, and God knew. Now, that's a really weird way to end. And I'm sure we have various translations out there that kind of to try to explain what it means, and God knew, <laughs> done. Um, but I think this is that, um, uh, in parallel with God remembered, this is that use of intimacy, intimate knowing, right? So like in Genesis 1, when Adam knew Eve and she bore unto him a son, knowing is an intimate knowing. And so here, God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows them. He's, he's, he's as it were, recommitting his love to the people of Israel. He's entering into intimacy with them, uh, into a close, loving uh, relationship. He knows them. He knows they are his people. Now, God said that he was going to send, in Genesis 15, he said he was going to send them down there for 400 years, and at the end of 400 years, he was going to bring them out, and they were going to be much bigger, and they were going to take lots of Egyptian possessions with them when they leave. So God had the plan from the very beginning. And yet this is how Moses describes it to us, how the change occurs from darkness to light, from being enslaved to coming out of slavery. They prayed and God remembered. And so, uh, I, you know, it's always rumbling around in our Presbyterian minds how does God's providence work with his prayer? And the Bible wants us to know that even though God has a plan, he had a plan for 400 years of, of exile in Egypt, it was still their prayers that ended the exile. You'll see that again even in the, the later exile when they're taken off into Babylon. Uh, God hears their prayer and remembers his people and delivers them. And so... Uh, our prayers are important. They are described as changing God's mind. Now, again, we know God doesn't change. We know he never forgets. And yet, the Bible wants to communicate to us in a way um, uh, how important our prayers are that it will describe it as if God had forgotten or that God changed his mind. It's that important that we pray. Again, it's beyond me to put all that together, but that's, what, that's how the Bible does it. God says, I'm going to do exactly this. And when does he do it? When his people pray. And so uh, I think just as our final takeaway uh, from chapter 2 is to remember uh, the importance of, of our prayer. So, all right, thank you. And Sparky will be back next week.